and, and to know that they don't have to be diabetic. They didn't have to have their leg amputated. They don't have to be on a dialysis machine with kidney failure. They don't have to be taking the blood pressure medications. See, this, is, this fast food genocide is now intertwined like fibers of a cloth with our barbaric medical system, which treats every nutritional issue with a, with a pill that is poisonous that causes cancer. So now we got a cancer-causing pill for diabetes, and now we have a cancer-causing pill for high blood pressure. Now the person gets, so, and, and the pills give you a false sense of security, and that's all people know, and that's all doctors know, is to give them a pill. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Veg Talk podcast. I'm your host, Matthew Davey. I'll be sharing conversations that I've had with people who are helping us to live healthier and more compassionate lives through our food choices and daily actions. We'll be hearing from people who are changing the game in their respected fields, whether it be business, sport, food, social media, writing, tech, activism, politics, and more. Now, please allow me to introduce my next guest. On this week's episode of the Veg Talk podcast, we sit down with Dr. Joel Furman. Dr. Furman is a very well-known family physician specializing in nutrition and has been practicing for over 30 years. We had a great day up at his place in New Jersey, had a hit of tennis on a really hot and humid day, ate some amazing plant food fresh from his garden and recorded the podcast. Truth is that I hadn't played tennis in a while and I was pretty rusty, but I'm taking absolutely nothing away from Dr. Furman who had no trouble taking the win and I don't think he even broke a sweat. He's currently 64 years of age and there is no doubt that his nutritarian lifestyle and regular exercise have a big part to play in his health. Truly a living example of the power of whole foods. We cover a range of topics in this episode from mental illness to athletes adopting a whole food plant-based diet. It really was amazing to see how passionate Dr. Furman is about improving people's health and to hear some of the stories from over the years. I won't keep you guys any longer. Let's get into it. I hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, we're rolling. It's great to have you here, Dr. Furman. I really appreciate the time that you've given up today. We've just gone for a hit of tennis and Dr. Furman has absolutely wiped me off the court a little sketchy on my end so um yeah he's he's definitely in great shape and a quite a good tennis player as well so it was it was a tough hit what is it like over 90 degrees outside as well in the in the right in the middle of the day over 90 degrees so we had a good workout yeah so there was it was a, a good sweat sesh and came home and had a had a jump in the pool that was yeah yeah that nothing that was, feels better than like working out sweating and jumping in the pool right right that was yeah good way to good way to start the day and um get a little bit of exercise in before the podcast so feeling good feeling good ready to go so for everyone back at home dr Furman is a family physician specializing in nutrition and he's also uh, an author of multiple books new New York Times bestseller, uh, most recently, uh, Fast Food Genocide came out, um, which is more pointed at the, the fast food industry or the, um, the, you know, the preserved foods that we're, we're seeing in America and, and Western society today. Would you like to go into uh, your latest book a little bit for us? Sure. Yeah, um, it really explains the dangers of eating the conventional diet that most people around the world are eating today with more than half their diet being processed. The, common, the commonality between countries that have a high rate of cancer and heart disease and strokes and dementia is that their diet is more than 50% of calories from processed foods. So when I'm talking about fast foods, not just foods you buy in a fast food restaurant, but things that are processed, right, you come into bags and boxes and all that stuff that you can access fast, you know, digested fast, it absorbs the bloodstream fast, it's very low in nutrients, it's been pro- the nutrients have been processed out of it. And, and then another third of the American diet, about a third is animal products. So you have, more than, you have about 55% of processed foods, about 33% animal products, the amount of vegetation, the amount of natural plant food, which has all the money, that's where all the phytochemicals and antioxidants are. Those are foods people aren't eating in the modern world today. And we have an explosion of these diseases of nutritional stupidity 
and explosion of cancer and heart attacks and strokes because of that. But, you know, I think a lot of people are recognizing today that this lack of fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts in the diet leads to higher rates of cancer and dementia and heart disease, but they don't see its relation to mental illness. What I'm saying right now is that in America here, it used to be one in 100 people used to be mentally ill. Now it's one in five people are mentally ill. And the amount of data, scientific data, linking the consumption of processed foods and fast food to mental illness is overwhelming. And I'm putting together in this book to show that when you eat these processed and fast foods, how it doesn't just make you die prematurely, it makes your life miserable your whole life. It lowers your intelligence. It makes you... Um, let me let him... Can I let him out? Let him out, yeah, yeah. We've got Petey the dog here today. He's a, a little guy... Wants to go outside. <laughs> no, it's fine. There we go. Okay, now he's out. Now he's been quiet. Cool. That's funny. He just started like as we were. Yeah, he wasn't. As, he was fine before. He, he wasn't for an hour. He wasn't yeah. barking. I think a lot of people today, they're beginning to recognize more and more the link between the processed diet and cancer, heart disease, strokes, and dementia. But what they don't know is the link between mental illness and processed foods. And in America, we used to have one in 100 people mentally, being mentally ill. Now we have one in five people mentally ill. And the amount of people that have anxiety or depression is astronomically off the charts. Mm. And the, the link between eating processed foods and fast foods and commercial baked goods and depression is strong. And what I'm saying right now is that studies show that even two servings a week of commercial baked goods or fast food doubles your risk of developing depression. And I'm also, and that's major depression. And it goes up from there in a dose-dependent manner. That means we, we eat fast food or processed foods four times a week, five times a week, daily. People eat croissants and donuts and bagels and, and white bread every day. And they wonder why they get depressed. But I'm also saying that it, dummy, it damages the brain. It doesn't just cause depression. It causes you to reduce your intelligence, your creativity, and your enthusiasm about life. And even those people who aren't depressed from those foods... It causes what's called a dysthymic syndrome. That means people have a moderately lower enthusiasm about life, and they may not be floridly depressed, but they're not happy either. Mm. And they're more likely to be irritated, irritable, trigger temper, and angered. You know, so, so this, this diet is destroying the brain, not just when we have a stroke and we're 80 years old, but it affects our, our, the way we think and the way we feel our whole life. And we, it loses the ability of people to be successful economically and be happy and raise a happy family and do well in school. And, so it's, and I could add on to that, that the link between candy consumption in childhood and later life drug abuse, drug addiction, or crime is strong, also strong. So the people that feed their kids a lot of junk food, a lot of candy, a lot of desserts, a lot of ice cream, a lot of fast foods, they're damaging, they're committing tremendous damage in their children. And that's why I'm saying fast food genocide is something so critically important that people aren't recognizing today, how it's destroying the fabric of our society. And then in America, we have what's known as food deserts, where we have people of color who are congregated, living in certain parts of, the, of cities where there's no access or very poor access to fruits and vegetables and beans and nuts, where they're eating mostly foods from convenience stores and processed foods and fast foods. And not only those foods dummy down the population because they affect the brain, but they foods are powerfully addicting. They take over the people. They can, it's like putting people in prison and then to control the foods, control the behavior, because you can't stop eating the food. And then you have a whole population of obese individuals addicted to fast food with a high rate of diabetes, of breast cancer, of prostate cancer, of stroke, kidney failure, high blood pressure, and it's blamed on their race. You know, it's, it's this bigotry. You know, because in, even in medical school, we learned that black populations are at higher risk of prostate cancer and, and, and breast cancer and strokes and kidney failure and high blood pressure, almost as if it's the skin color had something to do with it. That's what we're taught. It's nothing to do with your color of your skin. It has to do with the foods you're being raised on and fed as a child. And I showed in the book that when any population is raised on that food, when you have, you know, Caucasian populations raised on those foods, they develop the same problems. I'm showing that people are, are, are mostly alike, but we ha and that's something I think that this country is founded on, the fact that we're giving people the op equal opportunity to advance and have a dream to have good life for themselves and their children, right? But we don't have an equal opportunity here. 
because it's, it's very unequal based on where you're born, who your parents are, and where you live, and what the food you're being fed. And nobody's talking about this. And I go back in history in the book. I talk about right from the Civil War, showing that when black Americans were first freed as slaves, they achieved tremendous economic advancement and economic success. And they had more centenarians and longer-lived people in the black population because they would have access to vegetables you know, that they grew on the farms back then in the South than the white Caucasians, than the white population did, who were still eating a diet with a he- more heavier amount of, um, you know, of pork and molasses and corn. But they didn't have many vegetables in their diet. It's all about the vegetables here. You know what I mean? It's all about... So, it's all, so, I'm, so I'm really advocating in a, in a passionate way that we have to have, give people um, equal food access and we have to have people have the opportunity to have healthy diets when we're, in, in, when we're young in life and have that opportunity so we can have people have um, the, the right type of um, attitude, freedom, and opportunity to achieve the, their ultimate human potential. People are not achieving their human potential intellectually, emotionally, or economically because their diet is so poor. And, no, and who's talking about this? Who's talking about all this stuff? Nobody's talking about it. It's like it's a, it's a crime that we're not discussing this. So that's why I feel that this book, Fast Food Genocide, is so important. People are saying, why the word terms fast food genocide? Well, because we have whole populations that are very vulnerable, vulnerable being destroyed by food addiction. And the foods that they're being fed, by, made by the processed food and fast food industry, are highly addicting and hard to stop overeating on them. They're designed that way. 100%. Is, yeah. I mean, they... They produce these foods in labs and they try and, you know, find They tweak the, them, yeah. Yeah, they tweak them and find right. the point where they become... The bliss point. The bliss point right, yeah. and you keep going back for more. Yeah, it's, it's highly... And people and wonder why we have so many obese, diabetic people. You know, yeah. there was a study that showed uh, by a group of scientists went to a section of Chicago where they had the furthest distance to supermarkets where people couldn't get much supermarket access and they determined that they had a high percentage of overweight diabetics in that at those areas... And the amount of years of life lost for those overweight diabetics living in the area furthest from supermarket access was 45 years of life lost per person. That like, wow, what? 45 years of life lost compared to an area with good supermarket access like in the middle of Boulder, Colorado, where people living to be, you know, adults live to be 90 years old, compared to people living to be 45 years old. It was just, I couldn't believe how, how extreme of a damage is caused by these type of food issues. Yeah, I've I've seen more information um, lately showing that as as an area moves from the center, right? Different, not only different supermarkets, but less access to supermarkets. So let's say we're in, you know, let's say we're in Boston right. or, or New York City, and you've got access to your Whole Foods, your Trader Joe's type places, but as we start going out to, you know, the Bronx. Right. Yonkers, and we move further and further away from those central places. These supermarkets don't situate themselves in these places deliberately because uh, they don't feel that the demographic is is correct, or that they're not going to purchase the the fruits and vegetables. So, how do we combat this? How do we? Well, things are changing, and I'm you know there are people like myself working to have this be changed. And I, an example of somebody is Mayor Bloomberg in New York. When he was a mayor of New York, he um, did a lot of work economically to uh, to give um, supermarkets tax benefits and other types of economic benefits to make to have them open up in these areas. And they also had street card vendors selling fruits and vegetables, accepting food stamps and credit cards, and they gave them swipes so they could swipe things. And, and, so they, and, and they also, you know, so his efforts in New York had a tremendous effect to decrease the mortality rate from, the, from in New York. And, and I think people remember Mayor Bloomberg because he remember that thing about not drinking those giant sodas? Everybody put a stink and saying, don't the, tell me what I can't eat and can't eat. I'm in that. And the legislature turned down his, the, his proposal to restrict the, sell, the selling of giant sodas. The big gulp. The big, right. But you know what happened? With so much publicity about it, people started decrease, decreasing their soda consumption. Just even though the law didn't pass. Okay. The soda consumption went down in New York. And, and of course, and the same thing with smoking. And smoking consumption went down in New York too. And New Yorkers started living longer. So what I'm saying right now is when... Th- when Socially and politically, we put an effort in to try to have people eat healthier and try to make it possible. And then we do see benefits in direct health outcome in the population thus being um, targeted. 
You follow me? So we were saying that because sometimes in the high in the ivory towers of the of um, the universities and medical schools, they'll say, "Oh, you know, we know you're right, but teaching nutrition or giving them more, more vegetable acts is not going to work because they're not going to eat those foods anyway." Not true. It's just false. That when you give people the right information, they see the people dying around them. They see people not doing well, and they see the effects of the, that diet. When you teach them these things and give them the right information, I speak in these areas, and I have people jumping up and down with excitement, wanting to grow gardens in their rooftops and trying to get better food into them. What I'm saying is when you give them the right information, when you have them access to food that they can purchase that's healthy for them, they do change their behaviors, and it's tough to change their behaviors when you're addicted to food, but people are starving for this information, and they're starving actually for, for proper food access, and we have to work together to have to see this occur. Yeah, that's un, undoubtable. Mm-hmm. Um, and that one piece of information that you just gave us there, just giving people the ability to know, you know what right. is out there. And, and to know that they don't have to be diabetic. They didn't have to have their leg amputated. They don't have to be on a dialysis machine with kidney failure. They don't have to be taking the blood pressure medications. See, this, is, this fast food genocide is now intertwined like fibers of a cloth with our barbaric medical system, which treats every nutritional issue with a, with a pill that is poisonous that causes cancer. So now we got a cancer-causing pill for diabetes, and now we have a cancer-causing pill for high blood pressure. So now the person gets, so, and, and the pills give you a false sense of security, and that's all people know, and that's all doctors know, is to give them a pill. So we, it's like you're, you know, a person's drowning in the, in the ocean, being inundated by waves. So instead of giving them a life preserver, we give them, you know, something to, a platform to stand on that's going to melt, you know, a raft that's, that's going to just, that's going to capsize and they're going to fall in again. You know what I mean? So it's, I'm making a bad analogy, but the point I'm making is um, we've now accepted the fact that drugs are the answer to eating bad foods. We give people drugs so they can continue to eat bad foods. If we never had these drugs, people would be forced to clean up their act. If we never had drugs for diabetes, there'd be no diabetics around. Because without the drugs, people would be forced to eat healthier when they, you know, and diabetes would melt away. If we never had drugs for high blood pressure, people would be forced to eat a healthy diet, exercise, stop eating salt, and the high blood pressure would melt away. The drugs perpetuate this society of all these sick people because pe- people think that medical doctors have the answer with these, with these phony pills. I definitely want to get to that, and that is you know, a really important part of the makeup of today's society where we're just so focused on uh, the, the Western medication. The remedy mentality. Yeah. Everything's a remedy. Yep. So I definitely want to get there. Instead of removing the cause, which is so much more effective. Yeah, without a doubt. Without a doubt. And the, the Western medication just isn't looking at root cause. We're looking at basically putting Band-Aids over the top of things. I don't care if it's Western, Eastern, yeah. Eastern Northern, yeah. Southern, or Northern. doesn't matter where it came from. <laughs> The if pills. it's medication, if it's these pills, you know, when we're talking about lifestyle diseases, we, lifestyle medicine is where the money's at. Lifestyle medicine gives people the power to earn back their health and get well again and not be sick the rest of their life. And the pills just perpetuate the problem because they're giving people a permission slip. Because now I lowered your blood pressure with a pill, you can keep eating your McDonald's. And you're, and you're going to inevitably keep declining and advance the disease till you're killing yourself a little bit every day. You eat that food. So lifestyle medicine... That's what you're in now. Let's rewind it a bit. Let's let's go back into you know to where you grew up and and how lifestyle medicine came to the forefront of of your consciousness and what made you what made you decide to go that down that route and it, you know, who did you have around you growing up right. that that got you in that direction? Right, it just made a lot of sense to me growing up. When I was about 10 or 11 years old, I think, my father was overweight and sickly, and he started reading books. You know, he read some of Dr. Herbert Shelton's books back when he wrote them in the 1950s and 60s about eating more fruits and vegetables to get well. And he, my father had some medical issues, you know, with his back, with his osteoarthritis, with his kidneys and things, and, you know, so he cleaned up his act and started eating healthier. And he got a, lot, got a lot better. So I would read those books when he would read them in the house, and we'd bring bag, health magazines. And, and over the years, when I was a teenager, I realized, wow, society is crazy. Everybody's insane. They're like eating, committing suicide with food. And nobody's talking about this. And it's like everybody's doing it around us. You know, it reminds me of a story with my children. Because I remember when my daughter, Kara, who's now 24, when she was four years old, 24 years, 20 years ago, I was right down the street going to this place called HealthQuest, where there's a gym where you can work out, right, in the gym. And they had a little, what they called a kid boot camp, for children's boot camp, and she called it a boo-boo camp, where they, you know, they tumbled and they climbed on things. 
And she came out of that boot camp, out of the boo-boo camp, she called it, <laughs> and she said, Daddy, does, don't these, why don't these parents love their children? And I said, what do you mean, Kara? Of course they love their children. She said, they're feeding them like cheese doodles and like junk food and things that are going to hurt them and candy corn and all kinds of... They're, they're, just because they were in this boot camp, they're giving them junk food to hurt them. And I said, Kara, they don't know that the food you eat makes who you are and they don't know that these bad foods are going to hurt you. Just we know that. And she said, how could they be so stupid and not know that what you eat makes your body? And this, you know, my, it, it, so I said, well, they, it's just because everybody does it, they think it's normal, they don't think about it because everybody's eating that way. Imagine if everybody was smoking a cigarette at the street corner and everybody on the, in the you know, uh, waiting for the bus and on the playground was smoking a cigarette, all the kids were smoking, all the parents were smoking, you wouldn't even think smoking was bad because everybody's doing it. Everybody's doing it so nobody thinks about it. It's like, like people just follow, but my children never could figure out and had trouble understanding why parents didn't take better care, why other parents didn't take better care of their children, and they kept hurting their children with these dangerous foods. You know, they couldn't make, understand it. You know, I... Um, it's funny, it's, it's <laughs> funny the way you're saying it, or, or the way that they were saying it, because yeah. it's, it's completely, when you break it down... It's completely unintentional on the behalf of the parents, yeah. as you said. They don't right. know any better. Right. But when you break it down logically, it's exactly what is happening. Right. So we're seeing it more and more now. Um, children, at least in you know, you, all you have to do is walk on the street and and have a look around, and you see you know young kids that are already already getting overweight, getting yeah. guts, and, and, and addicted to addicted to junk food. Yeah. You know, it should be reading, writing, arithmetic, and nutritional science are the f- are, are most critical. That nutritional science should be taught not when you go to medical school. It should be something doctors learn. It should be taught when every school across the country and every elementary school, high school, and college across the country should be required courses. Yeah. It's the most critical thing that affects our destiny. But, you know, so you were asking me about my background. Yep. So, um so I started out eating healthier when I was training, and as it coincided with my growing knowledge of human nutrition with my skating career, because I was a competitive figure skater, and I, and I focused mostly as I competed in singles and in pairs, but as I got older, focused mostly on pairs competing internationally with my sister. We, became third in the, we were ranked second in the United States in, in pairs in 1973. Um, in 1974, I was on crutches for a year. In 1976, I got back into skating again after my injury. And I was, came in third in the World Professional Championships with my sister. Um, so we had a, a very, de- we were very dedicated to our skating career. And I didn't, you know, achieve the potential that was available to me unto an unfortunate injury. But it still made me see that when you eat healthy, not just to affect your stamina, but the way I advise athletes today, and I have advised professional and world-class athletes and Olympic athletes throughout my career, was that you can't perform well if you're getting sick with viral infections and colds and flus all the time. And I wrote that book, Super Immunity, because so many of my people I've, con- I've count- um, consulted have been able to improve their performance and improve their world rankings because they stop getting sick. They travel. They, like the world-class skier, Eric Schlappi, who was in four Olympic Games, you know. But one thing, see, one reason he ate healthy, not just to make himself stronger or ski better, it's not going to make him ski down a mountain faster. But what it does is it made it so when he's traveling around the world, he's not getting sick, like getting flus and colds, so he can keep training, and you don't get burnt out, and you don't want to, and, you, and if, you're, if you get sick before a race, even a week before, or two weeks, or three weeks before, it could upset, upset your strength for that race, because you just were ill, and you were in bed for a couple of days. So these little things matter. And nutritional excellence matter when you're a top athlete because it keeps you from from it keeps you really feeling well. A lot of type, top basketball players today and top tennis players are doing this for the same reason, for two reasons: one, to slow down the aging process, so they there's not going to make them run faster, or throw the football, or hit the tennis ball harder. What's going to make them do? It's going to make them age slower. So as they get to be 30, 35, 40 years old, they still have their full mental, their full physical capacity. Number one. And number two, it's going to keep them truly can handle training without breaking down and get burnt out. And number four, they're going to not have as many viral infections and infectious things that could derail their training. So that's why a lot of top athletes, top tennis players, which you could, we could mention, we know the top four tennis players in the world are cleaning up their out. They don't drink. They don't smoke. They don't drink. They're, they're eating a healthy diet. They travel with their Vitamix blenders. They, they put those greens. They're eating the kale smoothies with the greens in there and the berries and the nuts in there. You know, so we have a lot of top athletes now who are eating, his, are eating their G-bombs. Right, I love that term, the G bombs. The G bombs, like Venus Williams, who you know left the tennis tour because she had um, scleroderma. 
Sho- oh, yeah. she had Sjogren's syndrome. Sjogren's syndrome was an autoimmune condition, yeah. so, like a little man. But then she changed her diet to like a nutritarian diet, like what I'm recommending, and she got well and back on the tennis floor again. And, and she's in late 30s now. And now she's competing on a, on a, world, on a world-class level. Uh, the point is we wanted people to complete, compete at a world-class level in life and fully enjoy their life and do everything they want to do. And we want to use that to recognize that you don't get well from lupus Sjogren's syndrome, scleroderma, asthma, rheumatoid arthritis, ulcerative colitis, psoriasis, and psoriatic arthritis. You don't get well from these diseases from drugs. Drugs keep you, make you sicker. You get well from nutritional excellence. And then when you get well, you're back to being a normal person again. You don't depend on poisonous drugs that cause cancer. The hope that people have lost their hope and their, their, they've lost their will to be, to be enthusiastic about their life. And they're not told and they... they go around for years and years and nobody mentions to them that they could have recovered from their asthma. They could have recovered from their chronic headaches and their migraines. They could have recovered from their lupus. They could have gotten rid of their psoriasis. Even with Venus Williams making that recovery from autoimmune conditions through nutrition, who's talking about it? Where's it in the papers? Where's it in New York Times? Who's interviewing her? Where are people with lupus? Where are people with, with Sjogren's and scleroderma and psoriasis? Why aren't they looking at that as a role model? Why aren't they saying, what should, I, what should I do to change my diet? Why aren't doctors telling people about nutrition as the ability to reverse autoimmune diseases? I've been screaming this from the rooftops for years, publishing articles in the scientific literature, you know, and it's, there's a lot of data out there. I wrote a book about it. It's, it's basically, you could say, boycotted by the medical profession. Yeah, so the drug industry, the drug way of solving the problems is all people see and learn about. It's it's just insanity. So because again, like being taught this information and you know, people are investing and going to school and to learn about this, do you, they're coming out the other end and they haven't questioned what they've learned. Right. Or they just take it for gospel and then that's what they're doing. Right. And how about the incentive given by the uh, the, the medical in- or the the pharmaceutical industries? Is there incentive? Yeah, no, I don't think I no? don't think that's it. I think the incentive is that you can the person can come into the office. It's what the doctor knows. They don't really know it ta- to to teach people about nutrition when they know nothing. Takes a lot of time and a lot of effort from the physician and a lot of skills, motivational skills, cooking skills. Um, sp- public speaking, so you got to really try to change a person and teach. You don't have the time to teach people. So it becomes economically beneficial for the doctor to have a, just write a prescription, give them a pill, and have the person walk out in five or ten minutes and see a new patient. Because you could see many more patients with that pill way of just prescribing. Mm-hmm. If you have to spend an hour teaching a person what they should change in their life to get well, that's too time-consuming, and you don't get paid by time. You get paid by the amount of pa- patients you see. So I think that it's, um, it's just... Um, you know, difficult for people to change their behavior and difficult for doctors to change the way they're practicing. You know, but we do have a growing number of people who are trained in lifestyle medicine today in the American College of Lifestyle Medicine with its own medical journal, its own board certification today, and its own, you know, consensus of, of, of um, protocols that they're developing. So I think the American College of Lifestyle Medicine is trying to change things. It's growing, but it's still a relatively fly on, a, on the back of an elephant. Yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely not as popular or the most popular way to practice. Right. But how did you get into your practice? So you mentioned that you were a professional figure skater and Correct. that was a huge part of your life. You know, getting to number three in the world, that's pretty incredible in itself. Um, but yeah, what was the the catalyst for you taking the the medicine route and, and deciding to go uh, to go with that? Well, as you could as you're hearing, I was very enthusiastic about nutrition when I was young. And when I started, and I was eating healthy when I was a competitive athlete. And then, even, but while I was going to college, I was still pursuing my skating career. So I hadn't taken any pre-medical requirements. It's when I started to finish college and coach figure skating and, I re- and work in my family's shoe business of 10 shoe stores, I realized that I, would have, um, that I would really like to go to medical school and become a doctor specialized in nutrition. I started to dabble, take some courses. And then I started dating my wife, or was when I was dating her, she wasn't my wife, but at that point, she was a pre-med student, and she was going, applying to medical school. And I started talking to her and saying, you know, why do I want to go to medical school anyway? You know, it's like doctors do is like wasted. It's like they po- prescribe poisons for what people are killing themselves with food, you know. So she said, well, why don't you just go back to medical school if you're so, if you're so passionate about this and do the right, do it the way you really want to do it, you know. And we were dating then, and I, and I, 
And, she, and I kind of said, you know, she kind of convinced me that, yeah, why am I dabbling and taking a few courses? I should drop my family's business, stop working in the full time. And if I really want to do this, go back full time and get it done. So I quit my family's business, told my father I'm not going to, you know, run his shoe stores. He's got to sell it and get and retire and I'm going to go back to school. And I went to the postgraduate pre-med program and then I got married. And my wife and I um, both went to the postgraduate pre-med program at Columbia. So we're taking courses pre-med courses when you've already graduated from college. You follow me? Mm-hmm. And I took, and then I applied to medical school and went to Penn. So I think, um, so at some point I just said, boop, I'm just doing this. This is what I really want to do with my life. So uh, the point I'm making is that right from the start, I was already passionate about being a physician specializing in nutrition. And I knew I needed the good credentials to do what I wanted to do with that, with that degree. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So quit the family, quit the family business and and became a physician um, specializing in nutrition. So how long ago was that? How long have you been? 30 years. 30 years. Yeah. So you've been... 64 now. And you've been doing it from mainly from New Jersey? Yes. Yep. I went to medical school at the University of Pennsylvania. Yep. School of Medicine called Perlman School of Medicine today. And then I um, did my residency in New York. Lived in New York for a little bit, but after residency moved here to Jersey and started here in Flemington. Um, So about, um, you know, 28 years ago. Amazing. So we've spoken a little bit about, you know, how the the pills that people are so, I don't know, confident in or just so happy to take. Brainwashed. Brainwashed, right. To take pills. So we've, we've spoken about that. And moving to America, I've definitely seen that, you know, you, you might be watching a football match. You might be watching whatever your favorite TV show is. And then in the ad breaks, you get, you know, here's your erection pills or here's your your cholesterol pills but here is the laundry list of the side effects side effects and some of the side effects are mind-blowing like it i don't know if we're thinking about the side effects of the pills but they often sound a whole lot worse than the actual thing they're trying to treat right but i think these suffering people don't consider the side effects because they don't see the alternative. Mm-hmm. And that's essentially malpractice. We're saying here that um, informed consent is a critical part of proper medical care. And every person with high blood pressure should be told that, sure, we can give you blood pressure medications, but I want to tell you that these medications increase the risk of cancer. They're not told that. And that, you know, they're not told the, all the negatives. I'm just giving the cancer as one example of the negative. They're not told it increases the risk of atrial fibrillation to lower your systolic blood pressure, increasing your pulse pressure through a medication. They're not told the, how, more, how much more effective changing your diet would be compared to the medication. So people aren't even given an option. They're just given a pill. Not given an option, and we don't have the knowledge, right. I suppose. Because, you know, it doesn't, I don't have to go far back myself. And how convincing could the doctor be if he doesn't know anything about nutrition to convince the person right. and doesn't even know the outcomes of what happens? Yeah. Like, I published a study in the American Journal of Lifestyle Medicine that showed that the average person following my, the average person with high blood pressure, all these people had high blood pressure. There were over 450 people in this part of the study, part of the cohort. And they dropped their systolic blood pressure on the average 26 points within six months. That's way more dropping blood pressure than you can do with medication. You know what I mean? And, wh- and those 26 points of blood pressure lowering was occurring as we were taking the medications away because the majority of the people didn't need medications anymore. So we're talking about that. that the pr- and the, and it's, the way, it's the proper diet you should be eating to prevent cancer and to prevent heart attacks and dementia. So the fact that you need it. So the blood pressure medication, bl- having high blood pressure should be an opportunity for the physician to convince the patient to eat a diet that's going to protect them against breast and prostate and colon cancer and heart attacks and strokes and dementia. It's an opportunity for the patient to have, this is the point where you have to change your diet. Anytime a person comes in with a medical problem, whether it's psoriasis, eczema, you know, asthma, headaches, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia, is an opportunity for the doctor to get the person to improve their lifestyle and get their health in gear and get themselves in good health. So what are some of the biggest killers that we're seeing today? So I think you've just mentioned quite a few of them. Yeah, heart attacks and strokes are the number one killer. Cancer's a little less. But number three killer is medical care. 
after th- so the number three killer of people in America today because and people and that's not even recognizing all the deaths that are caused by the medications the, the air cancer caused by chemotherapy by rheumatologists prescribing drugs and high blood pressure medications it's not even considering the effects of that the drugs have to create the cancer because all even the heart attack and strokes and cancer we're not even considering that many of those cancers were contributed by the medication use but, and medical care is still the third leading cause of death in this country so how are we getting there? How are we getting into this position where so many people are in, in you know, these large numbers, stroke, heart attack, cancer, it's a combination of this, you know, toxic diet right. and the medications that we've been given yes. that are supposedly helping right. our lifestyle choices. That's right. The, te- the, the medications are permission slips that enable people to continue their addictions. Okay. They're, they're enablers. It's like enabling a drug addict. You know, we're talking about the, the medical profession. The doctors are enablers to keep people food addicted. So people can't even lose weight because now they're on drugs that cause weight gain too. Yeah. You know? I've seen it. You know, something's... They shouldn't even have the um, sulfonylureas for diabetes. They shouldn't even be on the market. They, cause the, they increase risk of death. Half the drugs, some of these drugs shouldn't even be allowed to be prescribed. So I've seen something called IGF-1. Mm-hmm. Uh, insulin, insulin-like growth factor. Now, what is this, and how does it operate within the body? What are we doing to accelerate the growth of this? Mm-hmm. And is it part of the the conversation in terms of these, you know, these number one, yeah. two, three, four, five killers in the country? Yes, of course, because I'm, I'm recommending to people. I recommend people follow what I call a nutritarian diet. Nutritarian means rich in nutrients. It means a diet that's designed to be super healthy and protective against cancer, including a lot of healthy vegetables, including green vegetables and berries and beans and nuts and seeds, you know, and mushrooms and onions and scallions, all these foods that have powerful anti-cancer effects. We call it a nutritarian diet. It's designed to make you live long to 100 years old with your full mental faculties without getting cancer. Now, the question is that... You know, we're talking here about the fact that when you eat a conventional diet, right, that's, that's mostly processed foods and animal products, then we see these diseases develop, and then we see the diet becomes hormonally unfavorable. So it's not, so one aspect of a nutritarian diet is its, its nutrient exposure has a great and excellent nutrient exposure to micronutrients. And, you, and, you, and because when you have an excellent exposure to fiber and micronutrients, it has an effect to suppress appetite. So it naturally suppresses your appetite. What I'm saying right now is when you eat very healthfully, it naturally makes you not want to eat as much food as you were eating when you're eating unhealthily. The more unhealthy you eat, the more you have to overeat calories. That's the first principle of a nutritarian diet is, you know, having micronutrient excellence in an environment of moderate caloric restriction or without overeating calories, right? But the second principle you're bringing up right now is your diet to be maximally lifespan promoting. It has to be hormonally favorable. And we can't have a diet that's too high glycemic because it'll promote insulin too high. And high levels of insulin will accelerate your aging and increase your risk of death. Too much sugar, refined carbohydrates, honey, maple syrup, white flour, white bread, white rice, all these foods increase your risk, could increase aging because they're high glycemic carbohydrates, which are very bad for your long-term health. Likewise, the other hormone that's very important to consider, which you just mentioned, is IGF-1, insulin-like growth factor 1. Because when we eat a diet that's high in animal products, especially dairy products like milk, it raises IGF-1 to excessively high levels. And this sandwich of high insulin with high IGF-1 is particularly dangerous. Like the American style of eating, a burger with like white bread and a piece of meat, a pizza, some cheese with white bread, you know, um, macaroni and cheese, um, ham and cheese, whatever the sandwiches. We're mixing foods that are high glycemic carbohydrates with high with animal products. And that combination drives these hormones into crazy dangerous levels of, you know, that cause cancer and accelerate your death. Now, talking about IGF-1, we're talking about the levels of IGF-1 in America today are perhaps about double where they should be, double the level of where they should be for optimal health. However, because protein bioavailability and absorption goes down with aging, Many elderly individuals have IGF-1 that can drop too low. And the, the excessive lowering of IGF-1 can be a negative factor on their longevity. So that's why some of these vegan diets that are out there that are popular, where they've um, mistakenly thought that 
being low-fat was the benefit of a vegan diet, advocating these super low-fat vegan diets. Don't eat nuts and seeds. Don't eat beans. Keep your fat intake below 10%. Don't eat your heart disease. Don't eat nuts. All these mistakes that have been perpetuated or been promoted in the vegan movement can also push IGF-1-2 to levels that are unsafe in the elderly because their protein and fat content in those diets are too low. Uh, so 7% of total calories. So some highly popular vegan diets are not safe for children because they're not, they're not containing beans and green vegetables and hemp seeds and nuts. They're too low in fat and protein because they're not eating a well-rounded diet. They're eating just potato. They're like a macrobiotic diet. It's just brown rice, you know, just rice and little seaweed. It's too narrow a diet or diets that are mostly potatoes and rice. They're not getting enough variety of plant foods. And those diets are not only unsafe for children and the toddlers and babies, but they're also unsafe for the elderly as protein bioavailability with aging goes down and IGF-1 could, go up, could drop too low and you have increased frailty and more propensity for cancer when IGF-1 can drop too low. So IGF-1 is a two-edged sword. It's too high on the American diet, but it could also be too low in some radical vegans who are not eating a well-designed vegan diet. That's very interesting. I wasn't super aware of the... The other side of it, the too low, I have heard of, um, I mentioned to you earlier today, uh, Volta Longo, I think he's out on the West Coast, longevity um, kind of doctor. He definitely spoke about recently about the, yeah, the, the need for higher protein at an older age. Um, right. And it's, you know, it's not the need for higher protein per se, it's just that um, you're going to age slower. It's just that some of the type of diets people are eating are not designed to be ideal. And you have people that have religious fervor for their high-carbohydrate, low-fat, that they call low-fat diet, and they're afraid to, you know, they're just, they just take it too far. And they're, so I'm trying to um, not put a personal preference or bias into this and just give people the information, you know, look at the, scientific information in a manner to afford people the best opportunity to be healthy in their, as in their later life, in their 85, 95, 100 years old, what's going to maximize their health and is a vegan diet optimal for those people? And the answer, it could be if it's well designed, but you also have a problem with conventional vegan diets because of DHA inadequacy too. In our, in our studies that we've looked at and in my patient population over the last 30 years, um, there's been too many vegans that have damaged their brains due to DHA deficiency, brain shrinkage, dementia, propensity to, have to other brain injury and brain problems due to lack of DHA in the diet. Now, we, in the study, we, there was a study on 166 vegans who were not supplementing with DHA, and about a third of them had DHA adequacy because they had the conversion enzyme to convert ALA from the walnuts and flaxseeds and green vegetables was adequate. But 60% were insufficient, and about 30% also were severely deficient. And 20% were really dangerously deficient. So it's irresponsible. It's not, not safe um, for vegan advocates to be so biased to think that their vegan diet that they prescribe is ideal for everybody because so people are different and have different enzymatic genetic, genetic enzymatic conversion. And some people on a vegan diet require some of the, something like DHA. We're talking about, of course, B12, more zinc, things that people require, but DHA is so important, especially for those particular individuals who don't convert ALA into, e, into EPA and DHA as efficiently. And you have so many of these nutritional gurus telling people where they don't know anything about this. They're cavalier and telling people just in an irresponsible way, oh, you don't need to do anything. Look at this study. People, you know, they're, they're, they're like showing a, a, a biased viewpoint and they're not being cautious and conservative in their advice to people, and they're needlessly hurting people and causing harm that they probably don't want to do. But sometimes their egos get in the way of what, they, what they're advocating, you know what I mean? They don't want to co go back and say, well, I said it was wrong. I wanted that the data seems to suggest this would be safer, and you got to check this out, you know? So in, in saying all of that, uh, the, yeah, the, we may as well go into to the supplements. So how do, we, how do we get a good source of DHA? Um, B12, I've heard vitamin D, you've mentioned zinc. What are the supplements, if we're, if we're eating a well-rounded plant-based diet, uh -huh. what are the supplements that you would recommend personally? 
Well, I think you mentioned them right then and there. I mean, the main ones to consider, see, vitamin D really has nothing to do with a vegan diet. Yep. Because there's just so many people who eat animal products that are deficient in D as well. You know what I mean? And I don't think people have to go around being worried about that. But I think it's something you should check a blood test for and, sh- and, make, you know, and make sure you have vitamin D adequacy. Having super high levels of D is not helpful, but we don't want people to be severely deficient. So if your level's generally above 25 on the blood, I'm okay with that. However it got there. And whether you eat animal products or not, it's not going to change that. So, it's not, no. so this vitamin D is not a vegan issue. It's just we don't want to be super deficient in that because a lot of people live indoors. Yep. They're living in cold climates, so we want to make sure they're not deficient. All right, so the real thing is, so B12 is a major issue. And the thing to leave here with is that if you're on a vegan diet, then you should take a higher dose of B12 than a person would need to take if they're eating animal products regularly. You need, you know, the RDI for B12 is not sufficient for a vegan. We could talk about why that's the case, but that's the point. You have to take an extra amount of B12. The RDI is not sufficient. How much B12 should we be taking per day? At least 100 micrograms a day. Okay. About 100 and micrograms. The RDI is 4 micrograms a day. Got it. So and you've got to take more than that. Okay. Around um, 100. You know, 50 may be okay, but around 100 is going to be safe for most, from the vast and, majority of people. And that's micrograms. Micrograms, right. And what's the best way to consume B12? Like I've... We've, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter? We've no. experimented with like nah, nah. sprays, sublingual. Doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't matter. doesn't matter. No, just take a decent amount. All right, got it. And then we were talking about the next most important thing after the B12 for a vegan is DHA because about half of vegans, if they live long enough, will get into, will, could be developing problems with some degree of brain shrinkage in later life due to chronic, the chronicity of being DHA deficient for all those years. And other people on a vegan diet may not require that. They may have enough, you know, but it's a smaller percent. So it's something we have to be very careful with because once your brain shrinks, or once you develop dementia, or once you get severe depression due to DHA deficiency and EPA deficiency, you can't just say, okay, I'm going to wait till I have a symptom, because those are serious things. You know, major depression causes people to commit suicide, you know, and a lot of people don't thrive on a vegan diet, and a lot of it's because of this issue that, they, that their gurus, the vegan advert gurus, are never talking about. So people get depressed, and they get, but, but what if you get dementia? Can you take the DHA? Why don't you just wait till you develop dementia? It's too late. Too late. DHA yeah. doesn't work to treat dementia. No. It's not going to grow your brain back. It's preventative. It's not effective therapeutically. You have to prevent your brain from shrinking to begin with. So it's very important that people um, do not allow themselves to become DHA deficiency from their DHA deficiency from their vegan diets. And today we have blood tests available. If you don't want to take a supplement and you're unsure about it, then draw your blood and see if your levels are okay. There's no case in which severe, severe deficiencies are okay. It's never the case that a severe B12 deficiency should be left alone. It, vitamin D supplements may not help the vast majority of people, but it's never the case that a severe deficiency should not be fixed. It's never the case that a severe DHA deficiency is good for you. And people are they're just, their heads are buried in the sand. It's insanity. And there's insanity occurring in the vegan movement. You know what I mean? Yeah, we, I think there's, there's definitely work to do in, in terms of the nutrition uh, the vegan movement, you know, people off, we, we, there's definitely discussion within the vegan movement right. of where people are coming from. So, right. you know, we spoke about it before again. And, you've got and, people coming and, from the animal welfare side of things. You've got people looking to the be more healthy. Res- the more responsible we are, the more careful we are, the more we tweak the program so there's no holes in it that people can poke a hole in it and say, this is dangerous, that's dangerous, that's good the better it'll be for people to adapt it, stay with it, and the more the scientific community will respect what you're saying. When you put out this low-fat nonsense where people are afraid to eat a walnut, then the regular um, scientific nutritional community can poke holes in it and say it's not true, not what the studies show, and it, and it, it lays um, less respectability on your whole protocol when you even have one thing being wrong. The more we can accurately give people the right information, the more acceptable it will be among physicians and scientists and nutritional scientists. And we'll get better outcomes too. And we'll see people really following it, sticking with it, not developing problems with it. Yeah, so let's talk about, let's talk about how we can do this. So whether, whether you're someone that's you know, maybe younger and looking to prevent the onset of these diseases later in life or you're someone that's, you know, potentially seeing the early onset of, of some of these diseases you know i want to talk about how you're how you're going about treating people um i've seen you know you've got an equation for for some, something like health uh you, you mentioned the g-bombs before and also the andy scale i've seen as well um and if you've got anything to elaborate on top of that 
Yeah, how you're going about. Oh, it reminds me of something new coming out. I have an app coming out for the phone. Oh, that's cool. That's called Nutrient IQ. Okay. And what it does is, if you write down you ate some quinoa today. Yep. Or you ate some mushrooms. Or you ate some broccoli. It'll give you a number, a score for that. And if you, you could set your scale for whether you want to have excellent or genius on the you know, nutrient IQ, and it'll give you a number of what, how many healthy nutrients you ate that day, how many healthy foods you ate that day. And it's a fun game to play with how healthy you can get all your nutrients into yeah. the day. And then you get certain points, so you can get redeemed the points for prizes and stuff like that. So I'm making this little fun game that encourages people to eat healthier by scoring. So it's like the Andy score, but we changed it to make it nutrient IQ points. Um, because the ANDI stands for Aggregate Nutrient Density Index, which adds up all the nutrients in a particular food. Let's, so this is based on that, but we don't mention the ANDI in the, in the app. You know, and it's just called Nutrient IQ Points. Um, so I just thought, I'd th- so as you reminded me, it's a kind of a fun thing. And it works great for athletes and kids. You know what I mean? Because we have this, uh, these athletes who are using this in universities, like they're shot putters, or they're, and they're, they're not eating a healthy diet, but we say to them, just eat 500 points of high-nutrient foods. And they add up, and they go, oh, that's just stupidly easy. I just eat like two cups of kale and a cup of blueberries and this and this. And all of a sudden, we find that as their points of nutrients of natural foods go up, their performance increases. There's less sore. They can throw their javelin, their shot put further. You know why they can throw their javelin shot put? It doesn't make them stronger. It makes them, they, they can train with less soreness. It didn't make them stronger. It made them have less irritation to their tissues. So they're not being, needing as much rest and they can keep, you know what I mean? So we're seeing better performance in these athletes. Yeah, we're and, definitely you know, seeing, I mean, someone like... You know, Tom Brady is an example. A good example that, that yes. we've seen. So he's he's just played in the Super Bowl. And you're from Boston. I'm from Boston, so, so I've so adopted you must be the good Patriots. Friends with Tom Brady, me and Tom are good uh, buddies, mates. right? Very yeah, good okay. mates. Yeah, right. no, he's over here for dinner the other night. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's cool to see people performing at the the top of their game, right? At ages that we haven't really seen in the past, we mentioned Venus Williams, right. um, Roger Federer, Roger Federer's crushing it. Yeah, and uh, Djokovic is Djokovic, all these guys. Nadal, Djokovic, and Federer. Even Murray's eating healthy now. Yep. You know, so they're not stupid people. Yeah. They know they got to watch their if they want to succeed in the years to come. They got to watch their diet, including the Venus sisters. Are watching? They're eating healthier now too. Yeah. So you know. f- for the athletes out there, it's it's definitely about what you said. It's about not getting sick. Kyrie Irving. Kyrie Irving. Le- LeBron James Boston has cleaned Celtics. up his diet a lot. Boston you know Celtics. I mean? Yeah, a lot yeah. of these people have cleaned up their diet. Or like, you know, well, they realize that if they want to have success, and you know, even LeBron James dropped 15 pounds. Yeah. You know, he's eating healthier, and he's still yeah. ripped. You don't yeah. see any muscle mass really right. that he's dropped. He's, he's Look at still me. ripped. Exactly. So Dr. Furman is ripped, by the way, guys. He's in <laughs> he's in good shape. So he's he's definitely. Yeah, you could see this right through the mic, right? Yeah, exactly. I should have brought a camera. We should have done. Uh, we should have done video as well. Um, but it, yeah, lowering inflammation, allowing right. them to, to recover faster, um, go harder in training right. and, and, and be at the peak for a, a longer period right. of so time. It's not just for old people who are sick. No. And, but bringing up, of course, the things, you know, I've, I'm, I'm excited about my exposure on American television to, 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 um, coach and motivate people to eat better. And I've opened up, a, you know, and I, you know, always watch, you know, tremendously thrilled by people transforming their health. And I now have a facility where people can come in and stay for four to eight, 12 weeks. And they can stay for two or three months and be under my care. So if they're so food addicted where they can't eat healthy on their own, they're going to have a heart attack or they have angioplasty or bypass surgery, have the leg amputated with diabetes. No, come into my, come into my house and I'll keep you there for a few months and make you eat healthy. And, and force you to eat healthy. So, and, and, the, and, the, and what you see is you see miraculous transformations. People saving their foot from being amputated. People saving themselves from have being, you know, having a heart attack or something. So we're talking about people not having to put the angioplasty in or the bypass surgery. They come, you know, so, I'm, so I'm excited about, even now, at the age of 64, after doing this for 30 years, it's still incredibly thrilling and just the most exciting thing to watch people transform their health and get well again. Yeah. It, it's truly amazing to hear the stories. I asked you about some stories earlier. Right. You know, obviously, different types of cancers, heart diseases, right. um, lupus, you mentioned. Right. I mentioned that girl who had, was on the national renal transplant list, going to die with lupus, with a, with a creatinine of 4.2, which means her kidney was blowing out, and mm-hmm. she needed to be on dialysis soon. And then she made a complete recovery. Creatinine went down to 0.8. She got rid of her lupus. And I've seen so many people with it with such serious conditions. Now, why doesn't every lupus patient across America know that stuff? It's infuriating, you know? So it's, that's where... How old was she? She was about 16, 15 or 16 years old. Wow. And now we have... Now I'm trying to work, do this work with the Nutritional Research Foundation. 
at nutritionalresearch.org. I'm the president of the Nutritional Research Foundation, trying to raise money to put, do these studies, to publish them in medical journals, because doctors don't do anything unless they're getting it from a medical journal. And these studies cost millions of dollars to do them, to, you know, to get them at the level where people will accept them. So that's what I'm doing. And I'm, I'm trying to fund and start a study in Boston shortly as well, a, a diabetic reversal study. Amazing, amazing. Um, what you touched on before is really cool to see. We're having a retreat as well where it's, it's almost a solution to the, to the dilemma that you, you posed before where, you know, doctor wants to get through X amount of patients per day um, and the only way to do it is, is do it quickly. Even if they wanted to right. give more advice, they're, they're time poor and they're, they're unable they're to do poor. so. Right, and that's in, in lifestyle medicine today, a lot of doctors were teaching doctors to, to, to give lectures in their practice, to see patients in groups, mm-hmm. see, ten, see, send, see 10 diabetic patients together and give them an hour and a half. You know, bring them in together, see the high blood pressure patients. So we're, we're training the new generation of lifestyle medicine physicians, a new way to practice and a new way to motivate and the art of motivation and teaching your patients to get them to change. And, and I think we have to have more of the things that I'm doing as well, which is also making play available so people can be immersed in the program, go away for a week or two or a month or really learn how to cook and how to eat this way and change their taste buds and, how to, and train how to get people to get rid of their addictions and get rid of their opiate addictions and rid of their smoking addictions and rid of their food addictions. That's what lifestyle medicine is all about because these bad habits are addicting. It's hard for people to make the change and we want to be specialists in facilitating that change in individuals to have them be able to get their health back. Love it. Love it. I think it's, it's, it's incredible work that you're doing. Um, and yeah, I'm sure your patients are some of your biggest advocates uh, yeah, for, the, for lifestyle medicine because, yeah. you know, they've, they've seen the change in their own bodies. Uh, I don't think there's much more, I don't think there's anything really more powerful than that than, than seeing, um, the power that we have within, uh, it right. just takes some, some habits that, that need changing. That's right. These, this, the point that you're making right now is that these diseases are not natural. And we think that's the inevitable consequence of aging or they're genetic or they're just, you know, they're just, they just strike us for no reason. And I'm saying that the body is a disease-fighting machine and when you optimize its nutrition, it wants to be healthy. Disease is unnatural. And these things are not, they should not accept the fact that everybody gets cancer as they get older. Just shouldn't, we should not accept that. So and what are the, the, the cancer-fighting foods? Is this, this is the G-bombs? Yeah, the G-bombs are the foods with the most documentation. There's other foods besides it that fight cancer, obviously. But G-bombs have the most scientific support in the literature that have anti-cancer effects. And they stand for G, the G-bombs, B-O-M-B-S, stands for greens and beans and onions and mushrooms and berries and seeds. And we pick any one of those foods and I could give you a whole laundry list of studies to show the protective effects against cancer. So we have a lot of data today. And that's where our, my Nutritarian Women's Health Study puts together the full portfolio of anti-cancer foods in the diet to get the maximum effect to protect against cancer. And we're showing it's effective at even reversing early stage cancers. So I've seen a lot of patients. So we're doing that type of work too, which is really exciting. And then, you know, to wrap this up, um, uh, my website at drfurman.com has also been really super rewarding because I can, give, I can put information out there to the masses. And I can also have people ask me questions. And I have people from Australia and South Africa and India and all people all over the world asking me questions and coming on. And I'm giving them some advice or giving them or directing them or motivating them or teaching them. So we have a, a kind of like emotional support system, an intellectual support system. And I've enabled people to ask myself and my medical staff and my food addiction counselors to be in contact with them so they don't have to drive to Flemington, New Jersey to get my guidance. They can just do it right over the internet and we can help people you know, just by motive, they right, right through the modern technology of the internet. Yeah, so that's can. also exciting, you know, because all the, you know, um, thousands of people that are connected with me across the world, you know what I mean? So that's, it's really cool. Yeah, the reach is amazing. Yeah. Uh, we definitely need to embrace what we've got in, in terms of technology and use it for the, the better right. um, by helping people. One last thing before we, before we do wrap it up. What would you say to someone that's coming to you and says, hey, you know, Dr. Furman, I've decided that I'm going to try like the, the keto diet or the paleo diet. These things are popular. Mm-hmm. I suppose, you know, there have been popular diets throughout time uh, that, you know, probably not super successful. But would you be able to go into 
yeah, what you'd say to someone that's that's contemplating going down that route, uh, and why why they haven't been successful historically. Right. You know. So clearly, my message is very um, clearly laid out. In other words, I tell people that we give certain studies a lot of credence, and we give other studies very little credence. So how do we decide which studies to value and which studies not to value? But we have to really give studies to credence that go on for decades, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and look at large populations of people. And when the endpoints are hard endpoints, not soft endpoints, a, uh, a soft endpoint might be you lost weight, your cholesterol went down, your blood pressure improved, your body, your, those might be soft endpoints. The cholesterol improving may lead to a longer lifespan or it may not. It seems to think that a lower cholesterol is better or a longer life, but a hard endpoint is whether you had a heart attack or whether you died or whether you lived. We look at studies with hard endpoints. We find that the keto diets, the paleo diets, the high animal product diets, the meat diets, the high, those type of diets shorten human lifespan. When you're looking at people doing them for 20 and 30 years, for decades, they have higher rates of cancer. They have higher rates of heart attack rate. And we have these studies with large numbers of people. While the opposite is also true, we look at populations for many decades who have diets very high in vegetables and fruits and beans. Their lifespan's very long. And that's where the blue zones, the centenarian studies. So, the, so, the, we're looking at, so when we look at the data, the data suggests you'd be very foolish to chance shortening your life with those crazy fad diets that do not have the scientific support or the epidemiologic you know, experience of people doing these diets for decades. Where since when is a you know a high meat diet where you're stopping eating all you know squashes and beans and you know and and refusing can't eat a piece of fruit? Where is that diet stood the test of time throughout human history? The Eskimos maybe, yeah, but of course that's the perfect example. Very short-lived populations with no centenarians. All the long-lived societies are all heavy vegetable eaters. So in, in other words, the data is overwhelmingly solid today. You can't deny it. You'd have to bury your head in the stand and be and and lie. You'd have to just lie or fake. The fake data to suggest that those diets are, gonna, are not going to be harmful for people because there's too much data showing danger. One study in particular showed a fourfold increased risk of cancer you know, for people adopting the high diets, higher animal products. Do they cherry pick to, to produce an argument that may be favorable? Do they just take... Well, you know, you could always show any kind... You could show any kind of study you want to show eggs are favorable or eggs, you know, basing on eggs are better than donuts. You put, take the donuts away and give them eggs, they're going to be favorable. You know, I'm just saying you could make any kind of study show anything. We never use one study to determine... We have to look at the whole constellation of studies. We're looking at DHA, for example. Don't... You've got to look at every study ever done on that. So you have to say, let's do a comprehensive search. Let's pull together all the studies done on this issue and look at it and, unbi- and, and put it all on the table all 100 studies, and let's look at what it shows in an unbiased manner. So that's exactly the point, is that when we're looking at a particular issue, the person explaining the data to you has to not have a personal bias involved in this. You know what I mean? And, and so much from both sides, people are trying to promote the diet they want to eat, and they want to promote the diet they, they, with the data that they want to promote. Now, I have to say, I've worked very hard over the last 30 years not to have a dietary agenda, not to have a philosophical agenda. Uh, you know, I'm, I, I want to actually just put forth what the overwhelming amount of evidence shows. And I have to say today that the evidence is overwhelming. The World Health Organization, the National Cancer Institute, I think that, every, that most nutritional science today are leaning in this direction of nutrient-rich plant foods being the predominant source of your diet, that processed foods and animal products have to be reduced to very small levels, and we have to prevent against um, serious deficiencies. You know, all these things are coming around to a, a, a vast amount of support among the, new, the scientific community. So it, it's clear it's just about the, the adoption, the adoption and the knowledge, I suppose. And the art of motivating people and helping yeah. them get through their addiction. Yep. Because it's hard to make for people to change when they're addicted to these things. For sure, for sure. I mean, that's, an, that's a, probably another conversation in itself is right. that the... We don't see food as an addiction today, but in reality, the foods that you're mentioning uh, in fast food genocide the reason are pe- The reason people, the trouble they have once they learn about eating healthier, and they know they're supposed to eat their vegetables, they know that the salad and vegetable bean soups, but they don't do it, and they'd rather die than do it. 
And that is an art to motivating and training those people to make this preferable way to eat, to make it taste great, and to make this be the preferred way they choose to eat. So the things we didn't talk about today is the art and the science of having this be doable, fun, delicious, and sustainable. Those are things for another time. All right, then. Well, I appreciate your time today, Dr. Furman. It's been a great day. I've got my workout in, got my podcast in, uh, so I, I really do appreciate it. Uh, thank you very much. My pleasure. Best of health to you, of course, and all your listeners. Cheers. Thanks very much, Dr. Furman. Okay, guys. Wow. What did you think of that one? I really enjoyed it. It was fantastic to meet Dr. Furman in person and share some of his knowledge with you today. There were more topics that we didn't get to cover, such as fasting, so I hopefully can line up another episode with him at some stage in the future. You can reach Dr. Furman at his website, drfurman.com, and also his Instagram page, which is Joel Furman MD, all lowercase, or one word. And it's always great to hear from you guys. So if you did enjoy the episode or any of the previous ones that I've got out there, a rating and review of the show goes a very long way in helping these stories reach more people. It'd be much appreciated. And I do thank you for the support. So next week, I have an amazing guy by the name of Bobby Nagelberg on the show. He's a cancer survivor and a small business owner. Don't miss it. Subscribe to the channel for all notifications and updates on the show. And I'll catch you next week.